Hey, let's pray. Father, you are seated on your throne in glory. Honor and majesty is given to you. You're deserving of the best that we can bring you. So we declare your goodness this morning, your loving kindness, your mercy, and your grace. As we turn from praising you in our hearts, out loud with music and singing, we ask that you give us focus and attention as we open your word. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see Jesus for who he is, not for who we need him to be or what we need him to do, but simply and beautifully for who he is. For it is in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, Let me get the pleasantries out of the way. My name is Patrick. I'm the youth pastor. I am not Frank, the senior pastor. Um, Kim said, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. And we are. So I'll say this really quick. If you are visiting, if you don't like my message, you have to come back next week. (laughs) Because Frank is way better communicator than I will ever be. He's also my boss. No, we love Frank. Um, I have been fighting a cold since Thursday, so if my voice starts to lull you to sleep, just try to do everything you can to stay awake. Um, First, we're going to play a game this morning, because I'm a youth pastor, and I like to play games. Jimmy Fallon, he uh, hosts The Tonight Show. He plays this game called Think Fast, okay? And so we're going to play a version of that this morning to make sure you're awake. I'm going to say a question, and I want you to blurt out the first thing that comes to your mind. Listen, this could be really fun to play in church, okay? All right? It has to be quick. It has to be like, okay, I asked the question, and, and, and first thing that comes to your mind, like within three seconds, okay? Is everybody ready? You're looking at me like, are we really doing this? Oh, we're doing this. You're not mic'd, so don't worry. All right. Why is the sun so hot? It's too, it's too slow. It's too slow. It's got to be fast. Why is the sun so hot? It's hot. Okay, ball of fire, whatever. All right, you ready? What are sports? Activities. activities. I heard activities. Okay. Which smell is the best? I heard so- Hey, everyone's not playing. <laughs> there should be like 400 voices coming back at me like, Okay, it's going to be quick, all right? What can I buy for a dollar? I heard nothing. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm probably going to cough, so I apologize. Uh, How heavy is a duck? Six pounds. Six pounds, oddly specific. Do you know the answer? All right, you ready? This is the last one. Who is Jesus? Well, that was fun. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Uh, just take your bulletin or something and, and write down that, the answer that you just yelled out for that last question. Just write it down. Jot it down. You know what you said. Even if you thought it in your head and you didn't want to play this bizarre game, that's okay. I won't hold it against you. But yeah, write down that answer. Uh, This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. 
Uh, Levi, thank you. You did a fantastic job setting us up, giving us some context. He read the passages just before where we're starting. We're going to pick up in verse 27. So if you have your paper Bible and you want to turn there, go for it. Uh, Otherwise, you can pull out your phone. I say this at youth group on Wednesdays. If you're going to be on your phone reading Scripture, be on your phone reading Scripture. There you go. All right. Um, Up until this point, Mark has been arguing his opening sentence. Is it up there? The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's verse 1. His thesis, thesis is that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. You might miss it if you read that because we're so familiar with the term Jesus Christ. But what he's arguing is that title, that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, we've worked through seven chapters. Uh, we still have some mystery swirling around this Jesus of Nazareth. In chapter 1, the Father claims him. Spurs throughout various chapters, the demons recognize him. They know who he is. The people are amazed by his miracles. We read that throughout these seven chapters. Herod, um, he has this strange hunch that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. We read this account in chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. But the question that stands out the most among all of them is in chapter 4. The disciples explicitly ask, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. See, Mark has been moving towards this passage. Last week, Frank talked about Mark's literary genius because Frank's a genius. Um, he said something like that. I don't really remember. I just remember thinking, oh, okay. Um, but Mark puts this right smack dab in the middle of his book in chapter 8. There's 16 chapters, and we're in chapter 8. That's no mistake. And so let's start reading in verse 27. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Now don't get confused. This shows up in Matthew and Luke, but we're in Mark. So let's stay in Mark. Um, This is an incredible question. Who is Jesus? It's been a question that has polarized history and society. Jesus has been known in some way, shape, or form since his birth in Bethlehem around 4 B.C. In fact, many would argue that he was known before he was even born. For many, he has been known as a wise and great teacher. For others, a lunatic that ticked off the Roman government and brought about his own death. I'm sure you've seen the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. He's my friend. Okay. Members of the Jesus Seminar that was popularized in the 80s and 90s. Yes, I was alive in the 80s and 90s. Um, I was not old enough to know anything about the Jesus Seminar. 
But the, those people who popularized this, they thought Jesus was a cynic-like philosopher promoting an egalitarian society that had no hierarchy or social structures. Uh, to the Muslims, he is a prophet of Allah, second only to Muhammad. In Hinduism and New Age religions, he is a spiritual giant who's thought to, to bring about a higher consciousness and even union with the divine. To uh, the Mormons, he is Satan's brother and physical son between Jehovah God and Mary. To the Jehovah's Witnesses, he is an exalted, created being, otherwise known as Michael the Archangel. Jesus, throughout history, has been an enigmatic or mysterious person. Amidst all of those voices rings Peter's response here in Mark chapter 8. He says, you are the Messiah. The word here in Greek is Christos. Can I get a translation? Man, look at y'all. Y'all know Greek. Good job. Christos. Christ. It's the English transliteration of the word Christos. It translates the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach. Um, this means the anointed one. So essentially, Christ and Messiah are the same word and they mean the anointed one. I want to pause for a second and go back for a second. The, the answer that the disciples provide Jesus for his original question, who do people say that I am, is a condensed version of what we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 14 and 16. I already mentioned that. Herod's idea that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. But it's also uh, a microcosm of the answers that outsiders give in their failing attempts at naming Jesus. I've already mentioned some of them. But I find this interesting because this is a question that I repeat over and over to our teenagers. In fact, I probably sound like a broken record um, when I start talking on Wednesdays about this. Like, oh, here he goes again. But the question... Who do you say that Jesus is? The answer that you give is paramount. Not only to your eternity, but to your present. That is the most important question that we as humans can answer. Who is Jesus? But then Jesus transitions. He asks a little more personally to the disciples themselves. And Peter's response is correct. It's the right answer says, you are the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But we know from what follows that Peter was not entirely correct in his response. We're going to see in this conversation the way it develops. So the question is, what did Peter mean by Messiah? You ever get asked something and you give just a vague enough answer that you're, you're not right, but you're not wrong? Any teenagers in the house? Jaren's looking at me like, what are you talking about? Like, like, let's say your parent, you get home and your parents are like, hey, how'd that math test go? And you're like, oh, yeah, it, uh, it was okay. And meanwhile, in your head, you're thinking, you know exactly how many questions were on that thing, and you know exactly how many questions you struggled with. And instead of giving full on, on like full disclosure, mom, there were 17 questions. I struggled with 16, not going to lie. <laughs> you're like, yeah, okay, it was all right. 
We'll see. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. Peter's response here, it is the correct response, but he doesn't convey all of his true meaning until he shows his cards as the conversation continues. But before we get there, I think this trap that Peter falls into, it's still alive and well today. We have a tendency to put Jesus into our own imaginations, and we recreate him to be what we think we need him to be. Our perceptions of Jesus are shaped by our felt needs. This is evident in the first seven chapters of Mark. Are you sick? Go find Jesus. Are you hungry? Go find Jesus. Are you possessed by a demon? Go find Jesus. Those are things that are true of us today, and, and, and we can go further. We say, are you needing money? Go find Jesus. Uh, is this, na- this nation doesn't look the way you think it should. Well, it's just that it needs Jesus. I know I'm being a little bit facetious in, the, in, in this, but I'm trying to make a point. Jesus is so much bigger than the fulfiller of our felt needs. He is the Messiah. But that begs the question, what kind of a Messiah is he? And so Jesus starts to clarify that here in verse 31. It says this, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Now catch this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, so Peter takes Jesus aside, begins to rebuke him. Jesus takes Peter and turns to the disciples, right? Brings it back into the public. And he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So there's a lot going on here in this little conversation. Uh, Mark has established his argument that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And now he's explaining what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Well, at least Jesus is explaining what kind of Messiah he is, but Mark is recording it, right? You know what I mean? So this is the first time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus explicitly teaches about his death. From now on in Mark, the focus turns towards Jerusalem and what will take place there. It's interesting here that right after Peter claims Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus accepts this claim, right? Jesus doesn't deny it. He accepts this claim. He then uses the term Son of Man in reference to himself. Did you notice that? So Peter says he's the Messiah, and then Jesus, as he begins to teach, changes the title to the Son of Man. I found that interesting. You guys are looking at me like, okay. But the reference, Son of Man, points us to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. If you want to turn there, you can. Otherwise, I'm going to read it. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says this, And suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, or God, and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So why does Jesus change up the title? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Nobody asked. Um, I'm going to imagine that you did. You see, Peter, 
He could not conceive of a Messiah that would suffer and die. It didn't make sense to his mind because it's most likely that when Peter claimed Jesus as the Messiah, he was hoping that Jesus was the one that would overthrow Rome. He was hoping that Jesus was this expected uh, king from the Davidic line that would come and wipe out and, and crush Israel's enemies and establish his throne in Jerusalem and rule with justice and righteousness. And I think Peter's picking up on this. In fact, it's likely that Peter and the disciples were excited because they were going to ride his coattails to royal status. So Jesus, in his omniscience and wisdom, chooses a little less of a direct title. He goes with the Son of Man. This title, it still would have indicated that he would one day receive kingship over the earth, and that he was not merely a man, but also God himself, the second person of the Trinity. At least that's my argument. There are several different scholarly perspectives, and you are welcome to read the pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of ink spilt on all of this stuff. But it makes sense, because if Peter really hoped that Jesus was going to overthrow Rome, there's no wonder he pulls him aside to rebuke him. If Peter's expectation was that Jesus was going to be king over Israel, and Jesus starts talking about dying, of course Peter's going to be like, hold up, pump your brakes, come with me. And so whether this is Peter only seeing part of the scripture or, or the picture, or if this is ignorance or spiritual blindness, the way Mark is laying it out, it's probably spiritual blindness. We see right before this, Mark tells us about a blind man that Jesus heals only partially, but then he sees, you, you see that? See that development? This blind man who doesn't see anything, and Jesus touches him, and he kind of sees. They look like trees. And then Jesus really heals him, and he's restored, and he sees it. It makes sense. Blindness was associated with, with understanding. So I believe that that happened. It's the only account we have of that story is in Mark. But I think the disciples are piecing things together. They don't see the full picture. So Jesus, um, this, this most likely reminds him of Satan's temptation in the desert, which leads to this strong and public rebuke to Peter. You know, it's unlikely that in this moment Peter is indwelt by Satan. I think Peter is so blinded by his personal ambition that he's causing Jesus to question. And Jesus, we're going to talk about this in a second, but in this moment he denies himself and he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking of God's concerns. You're only concerned about human things. Jesus uh, was concerned about the salvation of souls. So I want to jump a little deeper into Jesus as the Messiah. See, we now are post-death and resurrection. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have the entirety of the canonized scripture. All of this we can read, right? So we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's teaching us, and we have this, 
and we can see it and we can put things together. And so I want to do this really quickly. How do we understand Jesus as the Messiah? See, if I went around saying Jesus is the anointed one, anyone familiar with Christianity might pin me as a Pentecostal, right? Maybe not. I don't know. Anyone not familiar with Christianity is like, what kind of ointment are you talking about? Like, they're confused. Like, what, what do you mean by the anointed one? Uh-oh. Oh, there we go. It went black on me. So if I went around, yeah, there we go. All right, but seriously, talking about Jesus as the Messiah... Sorry, I lost my place. All right, talking about Jesus as Messiah, I want to keep this brief because I don't want any of you falling asleep because you're starting to look like you're going to. In the Old Testament, there were many messiahs, okay? These would have been prophets. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. The prophets were anointed, okay? This would have been priests. We read about this in Leviticus. This would have been Israel's kings, and even the Persian king Cyrus. He is known as a Messiah because he is God's agent to return his people from exile. We read about that in Isaiah 45. So there are many different Messiahs in the Old Testament. But see, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that fulfilled all of these things. Jesus had come as prophet. He preached the truth. It's essentially what a prophet is. So when Jesus was born, took on flesh in Bethlehem, and he lived and he reigned in his ministry, he was prophet. He spoke about the coming of the kingdom of God. And see, Jesus knew that in order to establish his kingdom, he needed to substitute himself as atonement for sin so that his kingdom would be marked by a people that followed him as king. Did you hear that? Jesus knew as prophet that he needed to make atonement for sin so that he could have a people that would be marked by him and follow him as king. <clears throat> After atonement, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus sits as our great high priest, as Hebrews describes him. So even right now, 2,000 years later, Jesus is acting as priest. As, as our great high priest. And when we pray, we pray in his name and he intercedes on our behalf. Or as Dave Baca, you in here, Dave? Oh, that was awkward. Dave says this. He refers to him as our eternity lawyer who proclaims us not guilty to the Father. I love that. That's Jesus as great high priest. So Jesus one day, and I pray soon, he's going to return as king And we will see Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 fulfilled. He'll come riding on the clouds. And he will reign with, we will reign with him because he has made us a part of his kingdom. See, Jesus was, is, and always will be the anointed one. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He functions out of those three things in different times but he is all three of those. So this begs the question, what does it mean to follow him? So Mark in, chapter, in verse 34 says this, 
Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So at this point, Mark has established that Jesus is the Messiah. He's established that he's not this militaristic, political, conquering Messiah. Rather, he's a suffering and dying Messiah. So what does it mean to follow him? Jesus is pretty clear. He lays out his terms. First, he sets the conditions. Deny oneself, take up one's cross, follow him. And then he lays out his reasoning in verses 35 to 38. This is the paradox of salvation. For my younger friends in the room, let me explain paradox or define it. A paradox is, seemingly, is a seemingly absurd idea. It's this crazy idea that uh, uh, or statement, and when it is investigated further or explained, it is proven to be true. So it's this thing, at first glance, it doesn't make sense. You dive in a little bit more, and it is true. So here's the paradox. Salvation costs us nothing because Jesus paid the price. And yet, it costs us everything. Let me explain We cannot earn our salvation. Amen? Thank you. It is a gift that comes through faith alone. Yet to depend on Christ and accept this gift of salvation, one must give up his or her old life. Jesus says here that if anyone is to be his disciple, he or she must deny himself. That means renounce any claim to his or her own life and live 100% for God. 100%. This is challenging. These are words I imagine the disciples standing there, right? This is the first time that we read about Jesus talking about his death. Peter's obviously confused. The disciples standing there and Jesus says, if any of you want to follow after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Follow me. I don't know about you, but it's difficult to deny yourself. So what exactly is being talked about here? But first we have to understand that Jesus was willing to do this himself. See, in rebuking Peter, this was the epitome of self-denial. This was Jesus saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to deny myself. And, And on this side of the cross, we know that it wasn't just something he was saying, we know he took up his cross. He carried it. And so for us to deny ourselves, um, I can't tell you what that is. Because if I'm being completely honest, I don't know all of you as well as I maybe should or whatever. This is a question for you. What does it mean to deny myself? 
But you know, last week Frank started talking about um, this idea of next steps. He said that he's going to talk about it so much that you're going to, you know, throw something at him or something like that. So I thought, hey, I'll talk about it too. Don't throw anything at me. It's never too early to start taking the next step in your faith, especially when we're talking about following Christ. So here's the way I see it. I, listen, I know that I've been in my notes a lot. I've been sick. But when I wrote this message, I was thinking of us as a church family. So this next part, <clears throat> I prayerfully wrote this for you. There are some in this room who long ago you started following Christ. And so to you I say keep going. Be encouraged this morning with the reminder of how big and beautiful the Messiah that you're following is. But in that encouragement, do not forget that self-denial is a daily task. Do not forget that your willingness to take up your cross could be asked of you at any moment. Do you hear that? It's big. Any moment. See, we live in America. We don't see crucifixions. We don't do those. I'm not worried about being crucified for following Christ. But at any moment, I need to be willing to, to pick up my cross and follow him, even to death. Don't forget that when you fall back into your old ways, that he is waiting there for you to follow him out of those ways. So those moments when the old self creeps in, Jesus is there, and he's waiting for you. And he's ready for you to follow him out of whatever sin, whatever predicament, whatever situation you find yourself in. There are some of you in this room, you just started following Christ. Now in the scope of things, I put myself in this category. For me, it's been about, uh, I'd say 12 years. Or I said, Jesus, whatever. If it's my life, it's yours. So in the scope of things, I consider myself in this. To you, I say, keep going. I echo the things that I said, to be extremely cheesy and churchy, uh, the things that I said to your big brothers and sisters. Um, but I'll add this. Find community. I'm not trying to push any kind of agenda. I'm not trying to bolster a program. Christian community is important. Worshiping on Sundays is not, it's great, but it's not enough. You need to be surrounded by, by Christ followers week in and week out who are praying with you, encouraging you, and teaching you. I have incredible community here at UBC. I've got the elders, the pastors, and the staff. And we are incredibly blessed as a church for these people. You can applaud for them. They're amazing. <laughs> Myself not included. Yeah, anyway. I'm in a community group that I don't have to lead. Shout out. Any community group in here? Woo! Yeah, I'm in a community group. I meet with a group of guys 
uh, every other Saturday when we can to challenge each other, to hold each other accountable, to spur one another on, to rebuke one another, to pray with one another. Love those guys. Shout out. None of them are here. I've got my volunteer leaders in the youth ministry. Guys, I have got incredible community. And I need it. So my urge for you, if you're a new believer, if you're a young believer, is get into a community group. Or whatever community you need. And lastly, there are some of you in here that you've heard about Jesus You've maybe even prayed the sinner's prayer possibly more than once, but you're just caught up in yourself and what you need. Maybe that there's that ambition to do more, to see more, to taste more. My teenagers in the room, for me, what I when I was a teenager, I can't give my whole life to Jesus right now. There's a whole lot of fun I haven't done yet. There's a whole lot of running around I haven't done yet. There's a whole lot of stupid things that I want to do that I haven't done yet. <laughs> but when I was a teenager, the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart. I'm going to read this next, but you know, maybe you're in this room and you've been so hurt or so neglected or so humiliated that you feel this sense of needing to be more on your own accord? Guys, I can't list all of the scenarios, but hear these words of Jesus. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. And so to you in this room, I say trust Christ. Get a glimpse of this eternal perspective, this Big, amazing Messiah. See Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And understand that he has paid your sin and he's now called you to say goodbye to it and follow him. I'm going to pray. Father, you are a great God. We come before you boldly because we know that we have a great high priest who stands in our stead. We pray to you because the Holy Spirit in us urges us to do that. And I pray this morning, Father, for encouragement for those that have been following you. God, I pray for those that are new and following you, that you would help them to surround themselves with community, like-minded people who want to follow you. And Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit that if there is anyone in this room who hasn't considered the cost, that they would see you right now for who you are. They would understand that there is nothing There's nothing better than following Jesus. Pray this in his name and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.